G'day, Oshie here. Thanks for listening to the show. Just before we get into Michelle Laurie, I wanted to let you know that you might hear an ad here because podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. No. So if you hear an ad, you're helping me pay Andy and Rachel who help me make this show. If you don't hear an ad, whoopee-doo. Amazing. We'll hear Michelle Laurie. Okay. So thanks in advance. Here we go. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Some people are born into an environment that just, it's just, they've got so much to overcome. Cody Herman, who murdered Aya Masawi, was taken to hospital at 18 months old with scabies. And then he, his childhood was just insanely deprived. What could we hope for? We would hope he wouldn't murder a stranger. But, I mean, he spent his life in the car park of the shopping centre smoking ice with other homeless people because he just, he couldn't imagine anything for himself. He was walking out of this car park in, at midnight when this beautiful woman was walking towards him and something about her made him snap. She represented, I guess, the rest of us in that moment to him and he wanted to destroy all of us. That is author, podcaster and stand-up comedian Michelle Laurie and this is Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being here. I'm Osha Ginsberg, and this is a bi-weekly podcast where twice a week I hope to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear on this show will help you make today better than yesterday. That's the promise. That's what it says on the box. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. If you need to get in touch with me, it's super easy. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's it. I'm uh, Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a husband. 
what am I? What else am I? I'm a punching bag installer. I'm a following up on package delivery guy. And I'm a happy birthday to Wolfgang guy because it is the 23rd of August, 2021. And Wolfgang is two today. So that went quick. (laughs) I'm the first parent to say that, aren't I? (laughs) Anyway, thanks heaps for all the lovely feedback about the walk we took on Friday. If you missed that show, scroll on back one one episode, you'll find it there. I really appreciate it. It was really powerful. I really appreciate the emails and the DMs I got about that. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah. I might go for another walk this week. You never know. So let me tell you about my guest today, Michelle Laurie. She's fantastic. Michelle's an author. She's a podcaster. She's a stand-up comedian. And her latest book is called CSI Told You Lies. Yeah. It's a great title. It's a book that's an extension of her incredibly successful successful podcast, Australian True Crime, which is just absolute gangbusters. She's gone full-time. It's amazing. And in the book, CSI Told You Lies, Michelle goes behind the scenes at Australia's foremost centre for forensics and medicine and forensic science, the VIFM, which is the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. And, you know, you and I don't get to walk in there, but Michelle went there and she spoke to the people who work there. And while she does it, she, as a reader, you get to have a look inside this invisible world where the surprisingly charismatic people who work there, who are experts in their field, talk to her about the evidence, the crime scenes, the breakthroughs they have, the criminals, and um, I guess what it's like to meet the families on of the victims on what's probably the very worst day of their lives. It's a confronting story. But it is told with empathy and with kindness, all with a much, much deeper goal, which we will get to, and I promise you it's worth it. Michelle Lowry holds a dear place in my heart. She's a lovely human being. She was on one of the earliest episodes of this show, and you'll hear us talk about when I then returned on her podcast, The Nitty Gritty Committee, when she was visiting Los Angeles. I, I met her at the Roosevelt Hotel, Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood, and it was my first day ever on all of the antipsychotics and all the drugs. It was my first day taking on a polypharmaceutical protocol. I was on four separate kinds of meds and I was swimming in it. And um, we had a conversation on that day. And uh, it's, both those episodes are well worth checking out. CSI Told You Lies is available wherever you get your books. You can find Michelle on Instagram at Michelle underscore Laurie, M-E-S-H-E-L underscore Laurie. And here she is. Michelle Laurie. Thank you for doing this. No worries. How are you? How are you? How's your noggin? Uh, I'm okay. You know, it's we've just finished uh, a couple of incredibly intense work weeks, mm. which has been okay for me because I've been travelling between bubbles. But G's doing her HSC. Uh, wow. I think it's VCE in Victoria. So, yep. hey, kids, you know, don't take school too seriously, but these eight combined total hours of exams will determine the rest of your life. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's right? It's fucking hectic. And is she, I don't know how it is in New South Wales because I know you've just, just gone into your first hectic lockdown, but a lot of teenagers here have taken COVID so hard. Like, really? She's doing incredibly well. I'm so proud of the way she's handling it, but it's not without its challenges for everybody. And so she's going through that at the same time, and you'll remember this, Wolf is at the age of like, hey, I'm awake and I require absolute (sighs) entertainment and attention 
every moment. And if you turn your back for a second, oh, what's this incredibly dangerous thing I can go and stick my hand into over here? I know. (sighs) And it's getting more and more intense every day down here. Yes. Which is tough. You know, I don't know how the protests, I mean, I was in Victoria when it happened, but the protests in Victoria, they seemed, I don't know if they seemed as organised as the ones that have been happening in Sydney. Sydney seems to be the epicentre. I get it, you know. If if you have a complete this whole thing as a broadcasting professional, Michelle Laurie, you would probably understand that this whole fucking thing has all been about communication. The biggest yeah. failure of this whole thing has been about communication. And if people are unsure about where their pay is going to come from, if they're yeah. unsure about when they're ever going to leave their house again, of course they're going to cling on anything that tells them, oh, actually, this is what's going on. Of course they'll fucking, yeah. even if it's utter, utter bullshit, they'll cling to it because, oh, this person at least seems sure. Whereas, oh, you're like, a prime minister that vanishes for a week? Yeah. Like? Yeah, I know. And we went through it too. You know, it's, it is frightening. And people want to scream at something. They're screaming at the virus, really. But yeah. they'll scream at, at anything and it's frightening. It's the uncertainty is frightening. And it brings <laughs> out negative emotions, as we would say in Buddhism. Uh, well, I was going to. I was going to say that M- Michelle Laurie is the uh, the practicing Buddhist that you are. What's your <laughs> Buddhist take on uh, handling COVID and handling lockdowns? Recognizing the truth of your emotions that it's it's the uncertainty, it's fear, it's fear, it's frightening. Even like initially, I was frightened of getting the virus and of what it all meant, and you know that's sort of passed, which is silly. It shouldn't have passed because it's still really scary, the idea of getting the virus. But then these other fears come in, the fear of our financial future and the fear of of other people, <laughs> fear of my neighbours, my friends, people going crazy, all of those things. It's just, it's fear. And then deal with the fear. Don't be angry. Don't go out there and be angry and create more problems for myself through that, through the anger. That's my take on it. Don't go and protest. Who are you protesting? What? Who are you angry at? That's crazy. That's crazy. That's my take on it. Yeah, the Buddhist idea of that life is pain and suffering is like. <laughs> yeah, g'day. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> yeah. And, it, uh, you know, if anything, I get angry. Sorry about that. Thing. I get angry about the refusal to look outside of Australia even. I think... Guys, you know, we are so lucky. This is the moment we should be grateful. Our governments, and I'm a very partisan person, if anyone knows anything about me, they'll know that, but we have these governments, certainly in Victoria, we have a Labor government, federally we have a coalition government, but for the most part, they have actually worked together pretty constructively to keep most of us alive. And in other countries, we see appalling leadership, really bad. And, and we see millions of people in India have died, millions of people, mm. you know, and we are so lucky. We are being protected so well. And, yes, they're making mistakes, but Jesus, can you imagine having those jobs right now? They're doing their best. They're not waking up every day going, hey, how can I screw this up today? <laughs> they're doing their best. Good Lord. Can you imagine having that responsibility right now? There is no script for this. There is no, this is new. There is no textbook for this. They're doing their best and we are very, very lucky. 
our federal governments have ripped the guts out of a lot of our structures in this country over the last 20 years and they're struggling, but there's enough of them left. We have enough healthcare left to, to have kept most of us alive. We have enough care for the elderly to have kept most of them alive. We have enough public service to have been able to roll out the vaccine a bit <laughs> slowly, but Jesus, we're lucky, man. Your kids are old enough now to start asking some pretty hectic questions of you. How do you talk to them about it? They're, they're very resilient. They're doing really well. They're 11 and a half. And um, they just like, when when lockdown happens in Victoria now, they're like, okay, battle stations, everyone just takes their spot, everyone takes their position and gets on with it. They understand the restrictions as they pertain to them. They work with them. Yesterday they met a friend, met a mate down the shops for lunch. They understand exactly how that works for them social distancing and all of that, they they just, they get it really quickly and really well. It doesn't, nothing freaks them out. It's amazing. I know that older teenagers seem to be struggling really badly with mental health, but there's something about their age group that's like easy breezy, no problem. Mm. We'll, we'll go with it. They're very um, strict with their parents about the restrictions. I know that they're right onto us about, are they in your bubble? Oi, what are you doing? It's, uh, you know, they're, they're really strict with us about yeah. the latest restrictions. They know all the rules and when they change and they're yeah. real rule followers. Working where I'm working at the moment, you know, I'm, I'm in these critical kind of situations where yeah. every single person involved in the production, without them, we can't go on. Like we've got such a skeleton crew that if that person has to leave, we actually can't bring anyone else back in, you know. And so yeah. we've, we've been playing it so careful on the the bubbles within bubbles within bubbles you have to create to allow people on television to make out in a global pandemic. Yeah, you can't right, even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you can't even imagine. No. But it does, you know, it's doing the job. Um, but everyone in the house is really aware of it, which I'm I'm lucky for. Have you found yourself having to use your buttery tools a bit more intensely the last few months? Yep. But it's been good for me to to have to do that. And it's been a good reminder of of that. In a lot of ways, it's actually been a positive in that way. My daughter said to me, it's my favorite thing that's happened. I built a flat pack a couple of months ago and she said to me, wow, I've never seen you do that before without crying or swearing. (laughs) She said, COVID's been really good for you. (laughs) And I said, oh my God, you're right. Wow. And yeah, so that's that's a big, you know, marker. And also I started painting again uh-huh. in the big lockdown last year, that which was our second. That was our big hard one. It was winter and it was really hard. I started painting again at nighttime because I was drinking. So like everyone, not everyone, but like a lot of people, I started drinking too much. And I thought, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to stop this? And because every morning I'd wake up and think, oh, no, come on, you got to stop drinking it every day. And I'd go, okay, I'm going to stop. And then every afternoon I'd get the itch. I'd think, oh, oh God, come on. I'm looking forward to drinking because they bring it to you now, Osh. They bring it to you. And it got to the point where my Uber East guys were like, hello, Michelle. (laughs) And they'd bring my wine. So I started painting and I hadn't painted since uni or whatever, since 20 years. So I started painting and I was so much better at it. Because it takes patience. Mm-hmm. And previously, I always got impatient. I was, you know, never. 
did it properly and I'm so much better at painting now. And the reason, and I can't drink and paint because I screw it up. So yeah, the flat packs and the painting much better. And that's good markers uh, that uh, my patience is better because of lockdowns. Isn't it wild when, because for you building a flat pack, you're just like, oh, I'm just building a flat pack, whatever. I'm just putting it together. I've done mm. this before. We but need it's, a shoe rack. It's when other people around you give you the feedback, you're like, oh, wow, I guess I really am different. Because we don't notice it. When you're in it, you don't know it. Like equally when you're unwell, you don't know it. Yeah. But when the other people around you note it for you, you're like, oh, shit, I guess you're right. Oh. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's... Particularly when it's your kid, it's pretty nice too. When, yeah. it, when your child notices that you're more patient, that's pretty nice. It is. How's life being a, you know, self-sustaining, independent digital broadcaster? Oh, it's so great. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing too, you know. It's like... Just COVID, I think, has for a lot of people just given us that impetus to say, bugger it, I'm going to do that thing that I've thought about, toyed with for a long mm-hmm. time. It's just like, yeah, life is short. You never know what's around the corner. What am I waiting for? Just do it. Do it. And, uh, yeah, so it's great. It's great. It's fun. It's exciting. And um, I've surrounded myself with other people who are of the same mindset and it's great. We're having fun and uh, it's great. I'm really excited to talk to you about it because as someone who's been in the machine of primetime breakfast radio or in America they call it morning drive, who's been in that, seen the budgets involved, you know, been the beneficiary of such budgets, seen the production staff, seen what it takes to get those kind of things to air every single day and then also be in the content machine of just having constantly, I've got to come up with three hours every day, got to do it, got to do it, got to do it. Having that, it's almost like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do it by myself. Can I? Can I? Can I? Tell me about what was it besides COVID? What was it, I guess, business-wise that you went, no, no, I can, I can manage this? What was the moment where you went, no, we can do this. I can push the boat away from the wharf. <laughs> well, I just know that I'm good at it and I know that I have lots of ideas and, and I love working with other people in terms of like helping other people grow and, and realise their ideas and work on their passion. And, yeah, I love helping other people who are less experienced and and I kept wondering, why is no one hiring me? Why is no one offering me a job? I kept seeing lots of men I'd worked with get these jobs. You know, as, as, as podcasting grows and newspapers start creating podcast networks and all these other people start creating podcast networks and no one's, and I'm thinking, why aren't you offering me a job? Like you're, you're even naming your podcast network. So it, sounds like my podcast you obviously admire what I'm doing you, you everyone's creating podcasts like mine why don't you just hire me to make it then I'd love to and then I realized oh, I just got to hire myself why not why aren't I hiring myself then you know it's like I don't believe enough in myself so that I just had to do that because no one else was doing it and then you did you hired yourself. Yeah. And then you're like, well, what else do I need? What does those networks do? They have a team. All right, let's go hire a team. Let's hire a team. And I went to these two women who I knew from the project who were producers at the project and they'd started a production company. 
And I just said to them, how do you do that? What what is that? (laughs) What even is it? And they helped me. They just said, well, this is how we did it. And actually one of them, their sister, one of her sisters is a marketing person and she is now one of my partners because she said, oh, my sister helped me. So I went, all right, give me her number. I'll get her to help me too. And that's Suzanne Tonks and she's now one of my partners. And Matthew Hardy is my other partner. He and I have worked together for a long time. He's a comedian. We've known each other for over 25 years and he has produced my live shows and he's my literary agent and we just said, oh, we don't know what we're doing, but let's do it together. And that's that's really it, isn't it? And I, I wish I learned that when I was way younger. It yeah, took, same. It, it took me so long. I remember, you know, people ask me about my show. It's like, well, I just realised that everyone that had a podcast just one day just started. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, don't wait around. And that's the interesting thing about other bigger networks I notice is that particularly radio stations that run podcast networks is they run them like radio stations. Mm-hmm. And they, they're like piloting podcasts for years. And I'm like, why? It's a podcast. Chuck it on. Mm. It's, not, it's not a breakfast radio show. Like it's not, you're not investing millions of dollars in it. It's different. That's the beauty of podcasting. Put it on. Put it up there. Just do it. Yeah, if people resonate with it. The, I, I always found in my early, and you were on in some of my earliest episodes, you were, I think, number 19. You were very, and I loved that. I loved that you went, yeah, all right, I'll do that. I loved of it. Of course. Uh, 2013, you did that. And in those early years, I was like, I just don't know what the, don't know what the fuck's happening here. But I started to get obsessed with the download numbers and I started to try to change the show to try and chase those numbers. Then I quickly realized, oh, no, no, this is fucking, this is a race to the bottom. No, 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 don't do that. I'll just do what I do with as much authenticity and passion as I can and people will find me. Yeah, totally. And they have. And I think that's the joy of podcasting. Like if you start chasing people, if you start clickbaiting your podcast, it's just, you'll end up... With just anger and pain and fear coming out of your mouth all day. Save that for radio. (laughs) (laughs) I I never knew how to access my numbers for years. I didn't know where to find them. I didn't know how many listeners I had on podcasts. So that was that was great feeling. Well, I mean, you would obviously once you turn pro and once you start working with someone who's like running your sales team and that invoice comes in every month, you're like, oh, I guess it's okay then. Must be all right. Yeah, I, I had no idea. And then they, they had the charts and then a friend of mine was doing a podcast. I think it was Will, actually. Somebody said, oh, well, this is how many downloads I get. There's me and there's you, so you, you must be getting roughly this many. I was like, oh, okay. Didn't have a clue how many I was really. Didn't care. Well, people are, people are resonating and you were very humble before when you said it, but people are resonating so much so that they're starting entire divisions of separate branches of the media company to copy what you're doing, which has been an, 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 just an explosion of true crime excitement. But I've moved into other areas now. That was a big test. I, for me this year, my goal was to try something different and see if I could make that work as well. That was this is scary. Ca- calm your farm. Yeah, calm yeah. your farm. Calm your farm, which uh, is uh, about, I guess, people dealing with the mental health without the help of professionals, which uh, I don't know what that's like. I've bought that no. many boats and sent that many kids through private school. <laughs> <laughs> Paid for a lot of rounds of golf. None of them are mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But I'm able to sit and, and be with the, the horror that is existence every day now, so that's nice. Well, that was another positive, though, that I found last year. The Kami Farm came out of me noticing that people were talking about mental health really because of COVID. Like people at the shops, people everywhere 
I went, which was nowhere. It was just the shops um, because we were locked down. So, but I could hear people saying, how are you? And answering, oh, I'm okay today, but Jesus, yesterday, whoa. Yeah, right. And really talking about being bad, mental health, their mental health was bad and edgy and this is what I'm doing about it. And it got beyond baking, you know, banana bread or whatever and how they were really coping with it. And I thought, that's so interesting. It's the first time in my life I'm hearing people really talking to each other about their mental health and how they're, the ways they're finding to cope with it. Mm. It's for grassroots. Yeah. You've not only done that, but you're putting you've put another book out, which I'm mm. I'm very excited to talk to you about. CSI Told You Lies. Yeah. <laughs> which I love. What kind of lies are we talking about, Michelle? Well, the classics like, you know, time of death. Time of death was 1042 precisely. Just things like that. Because I they asked me to go over to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine a couple of years ago and and do help them with a web series. And that's the mortuary, the mortuary and the and the coroner's court. And and I interviewed the people who do the autopsies. And God, what a cool bunch of people. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful bunch of people. And I just fell in love with them. And I thought, no one talks about you guys. Like we love forensics in fiction, but Actually, the work that they do is so challenging, obviously, that no one really talks about them. No one meets them where they are, really. And they're such beautiful people. And every one of them, without exception, does what they do as a service. They see it as service, as something they can do for the rest of us. It's very important what they do. And they see the the people that they work on, the job, they, they see themselves as like their last doctor. And they're so caring in the work that they do. It's beautiful. Wow. And they have, yeah, it's beautiful. And and it's like they're so intimately connected to these people and their families and the families don't know them. The families don't know that, that, that when their loved one is taken away, they don't know where they go usually. They don't know what happens to them in those hours and that they're cared for. And I kind of wanted people to know that, that they are cared for in that time very, very nicely. I never, until you mentioned that, I had no, I never thought of that. Like if you lost someone you cared about in a, say for example, a workplace accident, Mm. they're no longer at their workplace. Where are they? Well, they're downtown somewhere. When can I see them? No, we need to do a thing for work cover. Oh, well, when can I see them? Oh, tomorrow. Where will they to be in the same building? No, they'll be in another building. How do they get between the three places and who was with them? And when can I hold their hand? Whether it be my father, son, mother, daughter, you know, wife, brother, sister, whatever. You know, just that idea that they're with strangers and, you know, yeah. and it's cold and dark. And I've had people express that to me before, you know, mothers of, of murder victims say, oh, it's just the worst. Just like, where is she? Where Who's caring for her? And once someone said that to you, you kind of can never forget it. And so to know then where people are and that they are cared for mm. is really powerful and I wanted people to know that. These people, obviously, they have to deal with, I'm sure there's people who die, you know, surrounded by loved ones, and it's a beautiful moment. And there'd be people who die because of someone's incompetence, uh, people who die because a, a set of stairs that was put in in 1964 stopped working and someone mm-hmm. died. And then there's people who die because of extreme violence and incredible amounts of hate and anger. Mm. People are 
you know, young people, perhaps even kids. How do the people, speaking of mental health, how do the people that you met, how do they manage that entire range of things that they don't want to get exposed to today? Yeah. Well, that's interesting because they're on call, you know, so they don't, they, they never know. You're on call. Can you murder them um, at 11 today? Because yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah. seeing the dentist at nine. I should, I'm, I'll be a bit weird. I won't be able to talk properly, but I should be able to, yeah. It's just you like just whenever, never right? So you're on call for these days this week and you don't know what that will entail. So one lady, Joanna Glengarry is her name, Dr. Joanna Glengarry. She happened to be on call on both the days when Eurydice Dixon was murdered and oh, when Aya Masawi was murdered. Bloody hell. So, yeah, you never know. And each one of them, each one of the pathologists has different coping mechanisms. The people who last a long time in the in the job, obviously, are the ones who have successful coping mechanisms. And, and it can't just be drinking. That's not going to get you through. So, you know, there's Linda Isles. She runs. She's a runner. Dr. Richard Bassett, he's an odontologist and that's pretty full on. As he says, if they're calling me in to identify somebody, there's usually not a lot else left. Is that the guy that dental records? Is that the guy? Yeah. Right. So he, um, for example, worked, you know, for months after the Black Saturday bushfires and he got an apartment in a in a high rise across the road because he was just there for months and it wasn't worth his going home really. But what he would do was get his daughters, his three daughters to come and have sleepovers on the weekend, come and have slumber parties. So, you know, you think of the the days that he was putting in there and then it not and then he'd go over and just scrub himself to get that smell, try and get that smell out of his hair and out of everything. And then have a slumber party with the girls, order pizza, watch kids movies jump on the bed and that was his way of grounding himself and he just really needed that time he also traveled to thailand after the tsunami to do victim identification and in that instance he really needed his facetimes with the girls so that's just his way he's just got to connect with his family and ground himself that way dr david ranson is in a men's choir he just loves his choir. He's a really jaunty British guy. He's like in his 50s. He loves Monty Python and the goons. That's his go. And he's really, he, he compartmentalises really successfully. He's just a real scientist. He just keeps the emotion very, very separate for himself. He doesn't think about the circumstances around how this person has come to be with him. He's just very much about his job about the puzzle that he's solving, what's in front of him and his part in it. He doesn't think about the before. So the part, part of the lies I'm guessing is like, oh, the concert pianist who just happens to be there to provide a bit of exposition between this external shot and that external shot, that, that yeah. person, that they may or may not exist, but it does. It sounds like they're, they're not all that eccentric and, and odd. No. Yeah, I know. They're not. No. They, they, we have this idea of of them being kind of weird because they'd want that job or creepy. But no, no, not at all. Quite normal, all very different. David Ranson went to the Netherlands after MH17 to identify, <sighs> yeah, victims. So obviously just an incredible to be able to do jobs like that. But he also makes himself available to families if they want to talk about their loved ones and how they died, which is pretty extraordinary because, as he says, you know, the documentation can be hard to understand. Sometimes the family comes to him and says, what does that actually mean? Yeah. What happened? My um, 
Oh, sorry, that's the the background chorus of the home podcaster. Is this stu- yeah, I've got the same thing happening at my house. Yeah, <laughs> stupid just dogs. Wondering if- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was lucky enough to work when I uh, I was in the Netherlands for a while, going to a school there. Oh, that's right. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it was awesome. And one of the women I worked with, um, she was in the, the Dutch military, and she had just come from being in the Ukraine, working with the Australians. And uh, yeah, I guess she would have worked with your Yeah, definitely. Your yeah, mate. at Hilversum in the, um, yeah. Yeah, in the big hangar, the World War II hangar that they turned into the lab laboratory. Boy, would have been heavy. Like, but it's extraordinary to, to think of that, you know, all, all we know about this job. I and mean, I guess it's the same. For, in many ways, it reminds me of why people have so many wrong ideas about obsessive compulsive disorder, all right, in that it's a trope that we can use really easily to show that, this particular person in this particular film or TV show or play has a certain thing about them that means they wouldn't miss the chopstick by itself on <laughs> yeah. the side of the road. And that's the clue that unravels everything is better. So, But they can't just be particular. No, we have to make it bigger because it's a film or a TV or a play. And they go, boom. Okay, so similarly, all we've learned about the people that do these jobs with the cadaver on the slab and all that kind of business and the scales and all that kind of stuff is like, well, here's a thing that looks scary and, and creepy and weird. How can we make this person scary and creepy and weird? <laughs> yeah, you're so right. Yeah, I mean, within the scope of a movie or a TV show, yeah, we do have to, I guess, share information as quickly as possible and so we have to kind of literally broadcast as many things as we can about this character so we dress them a certain way and we make them look and sound a certain way so that we as viewers go, oh, okay, I get it, I get it, yep, he's the science guy, he's the, yeah. he has the creepy job, so we'll make him creepy. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And if we saw the real people in a room at a party, we would never guess. Knowing what you know about the science of forensic analysis of, of crime scenes and stuff like that, does it change the way you you look at the world? I mean, I guess every everyone in the last 18 months has thought differently about any horizontal surface in public from now on. Yeah. I know, know, isn't that funny? We're already all about that. Has it changed Mm. the way you think about, you know, when your kids are playing outside or or stuff like that? I think so. I think I – look, the thing is, I don't know if I used to do this or not or if this has just started since – because I did the web series in – trying to remember if it was 2018 maybe mm-hmm. or 2017. Yeah, it must have been 2018. And so I think it started since then. I started reading, <laughs> talk about creepy, logging on to the Victorian coroner's website and reading findings um, just uh, to relax, <laughs> reading the latest coroner's findings on uh, the latest reports. And I think that's given me a different perspective because just reading how people die is really fascinating. Because they're not all homicides by far. Like just the accidental ways people die has given me a different perspective on life. It just make, it really makes you think, wow, wow, I'm watching a movie, just got up, just was going go to go to the kitchen, fell over, knocked your head on, on a side table. Wow. That yeah. is amazing. Brown bread. Yeah. Gosh. It's a great line and I think about it all the time. We were talking about, you know, just start it, just do your thing, whatever it is, just do it. Mm. Like people, that, as we're talking right now, there's people in this country who will not see their loved one come home from wherever they went away to, you mm. know, and they didn't plan that, you know. I know, right? <laughs> but we have to be in acceptance that part of being alive Yes. It well, ends. again, that's the Buddhist, you know, that's why we Buddhists are encouraged to meditate on death so much because – 
Only when you fully accept death are you in full acceptance of life. That's the theory. It is hard though, Michelle. And people just want to, the good times, we want the good times to end, and then want the good times to end, Michelle. We want to, you know, create an everlasting life and build rocket ships to take us to another parts of the universe (laughs) so we can live our weird, you know, billionaire, crusty, 100-year-old men life in zero gravity. Bloody rocket ship. Oh, we're just going to take a moment away from Michelle because I wanted to let you know about the other podcast I'm doing with James Matheson. It's called Idle Australians. This week, Jim and I explored the incredible story of how Australia changed the world when they invented the ute. Yeah. But before we got to the ute part, we did both take a moment reflecting as two mates who've been doing a podcast together for six months, but to get to see each other in the flesh because of the situation that you and I are all living under. And this was one of those moments. I hear a delivery man can bring a, a scented air wick kind of thing that I plug into my wall that will give me rainforest scents at the flick of a switch. It's amazing. You, with the press of a button on your app, you can get an underpaid student with Uh, no insurance on a rusty bicycle risking his life for you to have an air wick and that's how things should be that's that's capitalism playing out its natural course idle australians is out right now wherever you get your podcasts just search idle australians i-d-l-e australians so you might hear an ad here or we might go straight back to michelle let's see what happens Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you were, like you mentioned that you were just sitting at home to relax, reading up about death, you know, that, that's one thing because you're kind of, a, I, I guess, you are separating yourself from the, from the act or the intent that ended up in the, in the death. But when, you, when you're knee deep in the true crime stuff, does that, do you jump at spiders when you walk around? Do you fret when you let your kids go play outside? Has it changed no. your life? No, no, because I think the more that you research it, the more aware you are of how unlikely, actually. Hang on, hang on. As far as I'm concerned, if if I lose sight of my kid in the mall, I, that's it. I'm never seeing them ever again. <laughs> yeah, no, it's unlikely. It's very unlikely. But, the, but, but my interest in true crime actually is more about the systems that bring about these breakdowns in people's lives actually you know I'm, I'm really fascinated and I think that's probably too why I'm more interested in Australian true crime than any because that's the culture that I live in and so I'm interested in the systems our systems again that we vote for really and how they they bring about these breakdowns in people's lives you know and how it is that our education system our health 
system, our mental health system, our correction system, all of these systems, how they work, how they function, how they're funded, how changes to them affect real people, real lives, and create circumstances that lead to to crime, increases in crime, decreases in crime, how they lead to shuffles around in socioeconomic situations that, that lead to pressures that increase or decrease crime. That's what I'm really interested in. And, and you can see it. You can see very clear trends. And then I'm interested in, yeah, how, how people come together and, and how things happen. So that's really where I come in. No, but it's just like one person that did this one thing. It's got nothing to do at all. It's got nothing <laughs> to do with all the fact that every time because of the colour of their skin, they stepped out the front door, they were harassed by cops. And then one day, you know, and they could never get a proper employment of meaningful worth. And then the mm. sense of self-worth plummeted. And like, I understand absolutely where you're coming from. I think it's really important to consider that because there are some I was interested in true crime podcast for a while, Michelle. I'm not going to lie, but after all, I'm like, okay, I'm, okay, I'm done. No, I get that. Absolutely, I get that. I had yeah. to tap out because some of them. There's one particular one. It was almost like an audio snuff film. After a while, I'm like, I don't want to know. I don't want to hear an auditorium of people cheering for this. Yeah. This is not okay. Like this is a person who clearly has done something absolutely horrific, and yet we're isolating this horrific act from the 20 years of whatever that led up to it. And yeah. I'm not saying that they abate responsibility. Not at all. They still did it. No. And yet it's part of a bigger picture. And yeah. am I right in saying that what you're trying to do with your work is to say it would be a failure if we didn't learn why this happened to prevent it from happening again? Yeah, absolutely. And we're lucky because we've got an audience that gives us that latitude. We we have an audience that's really open to and and oftentimes we have victims and victims families that are open to that will give us that latitude and investigators we talk to who are interested in that conversation too they want to know and they want to talk about that how did this happen to me how did this happen to my child or to my loved one how was this person made and, and and also we've talked to offenders who have been really upfront about their responsibility and their culpability and also about how they got to that point. Yeah, and I think that's a re- really crucial conversation to have. I mean, now we have so much data available about brain development, let's say, you know, for one example, in children who are in environments in very early life where there's violence and neglect and and how that that just impacts on the development of their brain forever and how many of those children then go on to end up in juvenile detention so to, i think to ignore that is crazy why would we why would we ignore that when it seems like the solution is so obvious and surely so possible if we could support parents. And, and again, you know, the, the numbers of, of those children whose parents are really young and whose parents actually live in the same suburbs around Australia, the numbers of those families are huge. It's not, it's not hard. That data is freely available through Centrelink, which is connected to Medicare. So it's like it's not even hard to know where the services are needed. 
it's really clear. We can see very clearly where these places are around Australia that need more support, need more support workers. We could put them there tomorrow. Instead of closing Centrelink offices, we could actually invest more money on help for these families and support the parents and prevent these children from suffering to the extent that their brain development is hindered and lower the numbers 15 years from now of violent offenders who are ending up in youth detention who then go on to adult prisons and committing violent offences. We could do that. But, Michelle, if if their parents just went out and had a go and... <laughs> I know. If they were lifters instead of leaners or whatever yeah. the fuck. <laughs> yeah. And again, because it's generational, you know, their parents have come from these environments as well. It's crazy. So for people who may be being a bit confronted by what you're saying, who may have the idea of, well, look, I, I work for everything and I, I go to that. What kind of systemic roadblocks are these young parents facing that people in other parts of the country, not in those suburbs, are not facing? I mean, they, their education has been stunted. You know, oftentimes we're talking about people who struggle with literacy, with basic literacy, whose own parents were not employed, not gainfully or full-time employed. Also, we're talking about people whose employment options are probably in the sort of manufacturing industries that we don't have much of in Australia anymore. So, you know, as the Australian economy moves further into the kind of service industries that require higher education. We're talking about people who haven't completed high school and who don't have the option to go to university. So they're squeezed out of those kind of occupations and the occupations that they would have traditionally and that their parents would have moved into don't exist anymore. So it's difficult for them. We also have a a punitive welfare system. So they're constantly being hounded by the welfare system and having trouble kind of keeping up with their Centrelink obligations and all of those things. And so crime can become a a realistic kind of option. So we're creating this class of people in these outer suburbs in every capital city around Australia, or strengthening, I should say, this class of people who feel very marginalised, more and more marginalised, and that, that income gap is widening all the time. They see, oh, house prices in Australia are just booming through COVID. How is this even happening? We don't know, but isn't it fabulous? Oh, my God, the economy hasn't skipped a beat. God, we're so lucky. Meanwhile, these people are like, where? Who? (laughs) How? You know? Aren't we Australia? Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, we spoke at the start of this about people who are, you know, taking to the streets and marching through Sydney. Well, I remember what it was like to be 2021, 20, literally going from paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And if I hadn't worked the next week, I would be fucked because I had nothing saved. Nothing, not a thing. I needed no, that three not. or 400 bucks that was coming in the next week to get through the next week. Hmm. And if that goes away, well, I'm going, what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> It's like, like the last week they said, oh, look at the unemployment numbers. They're at record lows. It was that's casual workers, casual jobs are yeah. up, you know, which means what? No safety nets, you know. Yeah, there's plenty of Uber Eats jobs around and all of, you know, but that's not real employment. 
No, even though you do get to be on a first name basis with your friend Michelle Laurie, it's uh... yeah. And I always tip, and I always give great ratings. That's why, yeah, that's why always, people love it. always. But it, it is right, and yeah, you know, a part of this, I think, for me, Michelle, it leans back to what we were speaking of earlier about this. Just you know, you talk, you talk of systems. It's systems built up and maintained by and made in order to protect the people who are a part of the systems. Like if you suddenly got, you know, another couple of hundred people who went to the same five Sydney and Melbourne private schools who've never known anyone to not have, oh, it's got 10 grand away for a rainy day. Yeah. You know, they just won't be thinking about that kind of thing when they're yeah. at school. I know you said, oh, how am I going to make this up? To, how am I going to fuck this up today? No, they're all doing the best they can. They are. They yeah. are all doing the best they can. But if the services provided don't speak to the ideology of like, well, I had a go and I yes. look what I got with my go. Well, the race that you had a go in is not the same race that this person is trying to have a go in. The race you had a go in is like me riding my, I've got an e-bike now, which is fucking great. All right. So I can fit Audrey and Wolf on the back of it and we can go (laughs) up the hill from the, like, honestly, they're amazing. But it's like me riding my e-bike that can carry 200 kilos of load, riding up a hill past someone who's not got an e-bike. I'm like, come on, man, look at Look how fast we're going. Come on. It's just a hill. That's it. That's the value of that show Struggle Street. I just watched it again recently, the first series, because I, I was on a plane. I actually made managed a trip to Sydney not long oh, ago. Wow. Yeah, I know. It was amazing. And on the plane back, I happened to sit with these ladies who work in, you know, welfare. And one of them was in the first series of Struggle Street. She was running the one of the outreach places in Mount Druitt. Fabulous woman. So I went back and watched it again. And it reminded me of like how necessary this show was and the big backlash, remember, it it hadn't even aired. I went back and read all the stories about it. It hadn't even aired yet. It was just the promos and people saying, oh, it's poverty porn and all that. But how important because so many Australians did not know that other Australians live like that. And, you know, yeah, people who say, oh, well, why don't they just work harder and why don't they have a go? A lot of those people who say that aren't bad people. They genuinely don't understand their privilege. They don't understand how far behind the eight ball some Australians are just when they're born, how much they have to get through just to get to the starting line. And and so a show like Struggle Street is just trying to say, look, some people are born into an environment that just, it's just, they've got so much to overcome yeah. first before they can even begin. I was talking to a mate of mine the other day who's a gastroenterologist. She did some time in communities, you know, in Central Australia, and she said she couldn't believe, you know, some of the patients that she saw. Cody Herman, who murdered Aya Masawi, was taken to hospital at 18 months old with scabies. And then he, his childhood was just insanely deprived, insane. So this is what we're talking about. How could a person whose life began in this situation of deprivation and neglect, what could we hope for? We would hope he wouldn't murder a stranger. But, I mean, he spent his life in the car park of the shopping centres smoking ice with other homeless people because he just, he couldn't imagine anything for himself. He couldn't imagine anything for himself. It doesn't by any means, by no means apologising for the crime no. he committed. No, it was crazy, but his his brain is not f- 
formed. He can't make rational decisions. He has a, a personality disorder that makes him believe that he is being made fun of all the time, that everyone looks down on him. Who knows what entered his mind? He was walking out of this car park in, at midnight when this beautiful woman was walking towards him and something about her made him snap. He he just felt so much hate for her. She represented, I guess, the rest of us in that moment to him and he wanted to destroy all of us and she was all of us to him in that second. And he regrets, I believe he regrets it and has regretted it ever since. He wrote a letter wrote a note to her family and handed it to the judge on the last day of his sentencing. And it's uh, like it's written by a child, just saying, I'm so sorry, please don't give in to hate like I did. And he said to his lawyer later in prison, he said, I don't know what everyone complains about in here. It's just the best I've ever had it in my whole life. And he said, if I behave really well, I might get to a prison where there's good programs. Always uplifting to speak to you, Michelle. <laughs> I know. I know. But it's true. Gross. No, but it's important. And it's important that we have these conversations because that story was incredibly shocking for everyone. All right. But it's easy for us to go, fuck, that person's a bad person, lock them up forever. It's very, very hard for us to go. And this is a very difficult part of the conversation is to go, what did the perpetrator, what? It's very hard to find some empathy in her heart for a perpetrator. Let me tell you, the other guy, because again, so the same lady did both autopsies, the same defence lawyer defended both him and James Todd, who murdered Eurydice Dixon. Wow. Tim Marsh is his name. He's a beautiful, beautiful man. And Eurydice Dixon's father, Jeremy, another beautiful man, thanked Tim Marsh for the way he conducted himself when he defended Eurydice's killer. Now, how's that? for grace. Oh, my God. I have have the horrors thinking about that. Mm. I have the horrors thinking about, I mean, because I read about about her death and Mm. I read about the rest of the things that that bloke did later that Mm. night and his internet search history and, and things like that later that night. Yeah. And, you know, to think about, it's easy for us to then put us in their situation, you know, and put, whatever yeah. loved one we have in mind in their situation and go, that's it, lock them up for life. No, 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 no. Can't build a big enough prison. But I, I think for me, Michelle, I don't know how this plays into what we spoke about earlier with the Buddhism thing, but for me that is it's literally just flaying the monster in your dream that can never be flayed. You can smash it into a pancake that doesn't even resemble what it used to look like, but it's, it never makes you feel good enough. It never no. does what you think it will do, surely. Well, that's why in the book I include the Maslins and wrote this chapter with the Maslins who lost their children in MH17 because they are so incredibly focused on their survival. And I shouldn't even use that word because they're, they're not surviving, they're living, right? And they made a decision to, they just, honestly looked at each other and they had a conversation right what are we going to do here are we going to kill ourselves or are we going to keep living and it wasn't like a foregone conclusion it was like a genuine all right let's think about it will we will we won't we okay you know like they're just so pragmatic 
And then they decided, all right, let's not. Let's live on and let's really make our lives count for the memory of those of our children. And so, right, how can we do this positively? How can we put one step in front of the other? How can we? And so their chapter is just such a testament to how you do that, how you overcome. And they even say it. They're like, you know what? We see people like breaking down sometimes and we think, well, I don't know what happened to you, but it can't be as bad as what happened to us. Like, get it together. (laughs) You know, like they're kind of like, they're so awesome. They laugh. They make each other laugh. They're so deeply in love with each other. They've had another baby. They decided. They went, we're parents. This sucks not having kids around us because we are parents. We should have another baby. Yeah, let's do it, you know. They've, they're deliberate in everything they do. They're so wonderful. And when I said to them, I said, this is really embarrassing, but when I read in the paper that you had another baby, I thought, oh, no, guys, no, no, that's a bad idea. I said, I didn't even know you. And I thought I knew better. I said, I'm so embarrassed. They were like, oh, babe, you've got no idea how people think they know better about everything we do and how people infantilize you when something like this happens. This is the family, though, they, they lost their three children, young children. Yeah. When the, that plane was their shot down. Their eldest was 12. Eldest was 12. Yeah, yeah. But you can have these conversations with them. They're so amazing. You can just be so honest with them. And they, yeah, we worked on the chapter together. They read every bit of it. I told them things they didn't know. Yeah, they were amazing. It's, it's wild, Michelle, because it sounds what you're describing is you're, it's almost like they are, I found a lot of success with my OCD with acceptance commitment therapy. And the way you just described the way they live their life, that, that sounds to me like right. that's why HTT works. They've just gone, okay, well, what are we going to do? Are we prepared to be with this? Yeah, I'm prepared to be with how shit it was every day. Am I going to then live in accordance with my values? Yep. What are my values? I'm a great parent. Great. Okay. Kids. Yeah, it does sound like that's what, yeah, it does sound like it. Oh, my God. And they said that they gradually strung, not even good moments, but okay moments together. That's how they did it. Like eventually they'd have a moment where they'd go, okay, this moment's okay. And then as the days and weeks went on, they'd have more and more moments where it was okay and then they'd have a moment that's this is yeah, this is a good moment. And then, you know, gradually. Yeah. Yeah. But that's but that's life. That's it. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's how you do anything. Like you start to it's like how you learn to do anything. Like watching Wolfie learn how to ride a bike. He kind of strings the moments of getting his balance together together and then yeah. eventually he gets it. And that's like like any of us. And I can't recommend your book enough. You gotta get it. Oh, thanks. See <laughs> I told you lies. I love it because it's about so many great people and they all contributed to it. Like I've got everyone's permission or, you know, everyone worked on. So, yeah, I I love it because it's about great people. Well, uh, you're a great people, Michelle Laurie. (laughs) You are. I know it's kind of an aside. I know we did talk about it a little bit, but I can't thank you enough for inviting me on your podcast uh, when you were in Hollywood that day. Yes. Because that was the first day that I was on antipsychotics and – when I was speaking to you, I swear to God, and I remember Tommy Little came over to the table and you were there for a junket or something, and mm-hmm. and I swear to God, it was the first day that I was on everything. I'd ramped up to be on all these meds, and it was the first day I was on all four, and I was like, I'm making such a dick of myself because I'm literally speaking in slow motion here, and no, people are, yeah, I know, right? But I was able to listen back to it and go, oh, actually, I, 
even though my brain is telling me I'm in slow motion and people can tell that I'm on meds, actually no one can tell that I'm on meds. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for coming. I can't believe how brave you were to come then. Like, and also we didn't know each other very well, but like now you know that I would never, ever have played it if you sounded weird or I wouldn't have kept recording if you sounded weird or whatever. Like I would have always taken care of you, but we didn't know each other that well then. But um, yeah, gosh, it was very brave of you to come. Under those circumstances. What else was I going to do that day? Sit at home and just roll around in my own anxiety horror? No, I was going to drive into Hollywood and go see you because I knew it would have been fun. (laughs) (laughs) That was a beautiful day too. It was a good day by the pool at the Roosevelt. It's hot and sunny. Hot and sunny. No masks. I'm out by the pool. Hot and sunny. Oh, man. I watch... When I'm watching TV from in you know, like two years ago or whatever, I'm like, oh yeah. I saw footage of a gig the other day. I was like, remember what it was like to be sweated on by a stranger? Oh, I remember. <laughs> to be in a mosh pit and Do you remember that? Just enjoying that, breathing on each other and yeah. uh, like getting accidentally getting someone else's spit in your face while you're singing along to something. Yes. Like, no, I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> I do miss that. I kind of do. I kind of do. I miss people, yeah. It'll be a while before we're able to rub up against strangers again, but. It's going to take a lot of getting used to again, hey. We're going to see what happens. It's all going to be mm. very interesting. It's going to be wild. Let's take the wins, such as the patience to make flat packs. And excellent nighttime art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to exhibit, actually. As you should. Yeah. That's it's the fun. way. You're amazing, Michelle. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Wouldn't go that far, but thank you so much for having me. I was excited to have a chat with you today. Thank you. I would go that far. (laughs) That was Michelle Laurie. She's great. You can find her on Instagram at Michelle underscore Laurie, M-E-S-H-E-L underscore Laurie. Her podcast is called Australian True Crime. There's also Michelle Laurie's Nitty Gritty Committee and her brand new book is called CSI, Told You Lies. Get it wherever you get your books. She's the best. Thursday, we're back here with more Idle Australians and I'm back with Better Than Yesterday on Friday. Should we go for another walk? Email me. DM me. You know how to find me. Send us your email at gmail.com. Next Monday, Stuart Diver is my guest. Yep, Stuart Diver. That's a conversation that is super important to hear, especially in these times. It's an amazing chat. I really needed it when I had it. And I hope that it does the same thing to you that it did to me. It's a real tricky time on the planet right now. For goodness sakes, it's raining in Greenland for the first time in recorded history. We are indeed living in a very rapidly changing world and all we can do is accept and adapt. That's it. If you can, do what you can to donate to a food bank or a community food bank near you. There's a lot of people in our country who are struggling a lot right now because they can't work and the hungry people who can't work. Well, I know what kind of decisions I'd be okay with making if I was hungry and I needed to feed my family and I couldn't work. So let's help the people that, that we can. Donate if you can. We're going to be here a while. Hope you get some rest. See you next time. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.